All right, good evening, everybody. Hot day today. Man, I got fried. Tonight we'll be in Matthew 22, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 22. Lord, we thank you for this evening, um, this nice, cool place where we can meet, the kids being taken care of, and we've just got this nice time where we can, well, we're alone, but together, with your word on our laps, open to whatever you have for us, and pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Had some wonderful worship time with you, some singing, and a sweet time. Um, we know that you're blessed by our praise and our worship, and we're so blessed to give it. It's just uh, it's what we were made for. And so it just gets us into that right place. And so now that we're prepared and the soil of our hearts is tilled up and ready for the seed of your word, we pray that it would have deep roots and it would bear a lot of fruit in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus has come into the Jerusalem to be inspected, we kind of went over that last week a little bit and the week before, I think, where they laid down the branches and the coats, and it's his triumphant entry, and um, the king has come, and they're excited, so many prophecies fulfilled. And we see him begin to get inspected by the leaders, the religious rulers, to make sure that, as John the Baptist, his cousin, put it, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that lamb has to be inspected for it needed to be without fault and without blemish, no handicaps of any kind. It needed to be the best of the best, perfect, to be accepted by God. And so we see that here taking place, and Jesus is being inspected by these rulers, and will be tonight also. And um, you'll, see, you'll hear his tone change. I know we're reading the Word of God, but if you've read it enough times, you can, you can feel um, the tone Jesus begins to use his outside voice at this time. He's going to call the religious rulers everything he can call them in this chapter alone. Many, many woes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Many woes to them. And he calls them, and they're sitting right there in front of him. Up until this point, he's been ministering to the people, the sheep of Israel, leading as many as he can to himself. But he knows that the best way to get people to him is if he's high and lifted up. And now we sing that as a song, high and lifted up with song and praise and our lives exalted. But it also means lifted up high on a cross as well. And he knows he's going to draw people to himself. And so, although it was never time for him to be in that position, the cross, up until now, he's definitely going to push all of their buttons right now. He's going to let them know the truth. Um. It's the most loving thing he can do right now is to raise his voice, to call them out for what they are and for what they're doing, and to give them the truth of what they need to hear. And I, that's a hard thing today. A lot of people find truth judgmental. It's, it's just judgy, you know. And it isn't. It's really hard to talk about a Savior unless you can talk about what you're being saved from. There's no way for me to lead somebody to the Savior of Jesus Christ without talking about the fact that they're drowning and what they're drowning in and what's causing their demise. 
It isn't loving to ignore that. It isn't loving to celebrate this horrible sin during this month of June and call it pride and to take pride in it. That's not loving. It's not Christ-like. It's selfish on behalf of any Christian that celebrates this. It avoids the difficult conversations. It releases people of the responsibility of calling sin, sin, not exalting yourself above anybody else, but acknowledging that there are two types of people in the world, recovering sinners and unrecovered sinners. And if I have found salvation, and if I have found a way out, and if I have found deliverance from that which was I was in bondage to, it's the most unloving thing I can do is to keep that to myself and to not tell those around me that are in similar situation that they too can be saved from what they're drowning in. So Jesus is going to do the most loving thing he can do, and that's to talk about hell, to talk about sin, to talk about the religious rulers and how not only are they sons of hell, but they make their proselytes, those that they bring into the faith, double sons of hell, he's going to call them. Worse than they are for those that they can bring into their fold. It's a pretty bold statement, pretty judgy, you know? But he needs them to hear it, but he also needs all the sheep around these wolves to hear it also. A shepherd must yell, (laughs) has to let the sheep know they're in danger, have to point it out to them, have to say that is not safe. They are in disguise. They are not looking out for your best interest. My Father in heaven is, I am, they are not. And you have to say that. Now, that's going to hurt feelings. There's no way about it, but it's going to save lives. And so in chapter 22, verse 1, then Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding." So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. It's quite a parable. There's a lot going on there. Well, the obvious and the simple explanation is there were two people invited, two sets. The first group is the nation of Israel. Come, meet your Messiah. Come be married to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Let him be your, bride, let him be your husband. 
you be his bride. And they refused. They made light of him. And they killed all the prophets. They killed all the servants that God sent to tell them that the Messiah was coming. So that's fine. We're going to move on to the second group. That's us. That's the second group, the Gentiles. We're going to go to the lost sheep of Israel. We're going to go to anybody that wants to get baptized. And the place was filled. But then there's a twist in the middle of it. Some guy shows up without a wedding garment. He says, how did you get in here without the wedding garment that is provided for you? Now, in the day, no, we don't know this. We don't do this. But you would provide wedding garments for everybody that came to the feast. And I'm not sure about the reasons behind it. I know that robes in the past, when people would wear white robes, sometimes people get baptized in white robes. You know, you see that in certain denominations. And the, the reason being is they used to put all robes on so that everybody looked the same. If you had fine apparel when you came to church, well, now you're wearing a robe and that's covered up. If you didn't have any clothes to wear or rags and you put that on and you look the same as the rich guy, nobody could tell anybody apart based off of what they were wearing. Okay, tags out, basically. They reversed it, tags in. Nobody's going to know what you're wearing. And so the wedding garment here was meant to bring people in and let them know, hey, you know, here it is. It's a blessing and it's a, it's a usually a white linen ephod and so on that they could wear and and but there was a guy there that didn't have it so let's break this down and to see what what's happening i have to go back to the beginning why weren't they willing to come who wouldn't want to go to that you know but for some reason no we're not going to go to the wedding we refuse to go and he says well are you sure and he sends out a second invitation to the same guys encouraging them to come and they made light of it and went their way and that really infuriated the king making light of things like that. In Acts chapter 17, verse 32 through 33, the similar situation had, had, when you hear about somebody making light of it, this is the scripture that came to my mind. Paul um, was sharing to this group about, on on Mars Hill, uh, speaking about the unknown God. They, They were worshiping all these other gods. He was filled with compassion for the fact that they were lost and not seen. They had this statue to the unknown God because they want to make sure the other bases were covered. And says, let me tell you about him. And then he got to the point of the resurrection. And that's is that part of the story. After he's done telling him, he never got to the name Jesus. He never quite got to who the Messiah is and so on. But he, he got close. In verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. While others said, we will hear you again on this matter, so Paul departed from among them. That really threw Paul for a loop, but that's a different Bible study for a different time. They made light of the fact. They heard something that bothered them. Resurrection from the dead. Oh my goodness, nobody believes in that garbage. And so they made light of what he was talking about. People will do that. They make light of it. I don't think anybody knows the gravity of the situation till the situation's upon them. I, I think that's fair. I think the Holy Spirit gives us a sense of urgency. When you become a born-again believer, there's a sense of urgency that comes upon you. As we were seeing tonight, I was thinking about my conversion when I was born again and how God had been ministering to me all along, but I had made light of it up until this one night. And I drew near to him. It was, a, it was, it was the crack in the... In the it was a chink in the armor. That, that's all God needed. I, ju- I just I, I made this step towards him that night, and the floodgates opened up. And he absolutely broke through my life and broke me. And I was, a, I was a puddle. I was a mess, you know. No composure at all. Completely lost everything that was of me. 
completely surrendered my life to him. It was one of those moments where the urgency came upon me, and I just knew, this is it. This is what born again is. This is what this means. This is what's happening to me. I've heard about it. I've made light of it. Whoa. It hit me like a freight train in a good way. I like getting hit by that freight train. I've made light of it so many times. I'm thinking about the, the, uh, the Titanic of all things and how they were, the quartets and all the instruments and the, were still being played on the deck as people were boarding the lifeboats. Talk about making light of a horrible situation. Now, they didn't understand the gravity of the situation. Nobody came up from the bottom of the boat and said, uh, we're all going to die. They all just said, why don't you step into the boats and, and we'll, we'll see if we can get this handled. Well, the engineers knew they weren't getting anything handled, and they began to figure out we didn't make the walls go all the way to the ceiling. So when it begins to tip, it just pools over like you're holding an ice, an ice cube tray. When you put it, Some of you don't know what an ice cube tray is, do you? I just, I just realized that. As I bring that up, you're all going, is that in the fridge or what? what is it? Well, old school, you hold ice cream tray up, and if you hold there long enough, it just, just fills them up. That's what happened to the, the Titanic. The, the walls didn't go up to the top. So once one filled and it began to tip, well, the next room, the next room, until they all filled up and it went under. They're playing, they're playing this music. I'm talking about, and the world is in that position right now. We are drowning in sin. Jenny wanted to know if this news story was going to make the, the sermon, and I said, it absolutely is. Washington State, some of you know it, joints for jabs. They're giving away free marijuana for anybody who wants to get a COVID-19 vaccination. Are you kidding me? I mean, you'd have to be on drugs anyway, but still, <laughs> I'm kidding you. Some of you have it. I'm wonderful. Just keep your distance a couple chairs away. and As soon as you don't have an arm growing out of your back or something, we'll be, we'll be fine. Now Facebook will check this and check... They keep asking me if I want to put up a, a banner. I was like, no, I really don't want to put up a banner about it. Um, joints for jabs. And I don't know why. I don't, even, I don't even flinch at those headlines anymore. I'm like, yeah, okay. That makes sense. It does. In this world, that makes absolute perfect sense. Of course you'd do that, you know. Why not? We're drowning in sin. The opio- opioid epidemic is... It's just, they're just dying all around us, overdose after overdose. If you could talk to Brian about this, Williams, about all the, is it Nar, Nar, Narcan? Nar, yeah, that they got to keep with them all the time just to get these guys off, you know, to calm them down from their overdose or whatever and however that works. And it's like, it's like the band is playing all around us and the ship is sinking and sinking, and sinking. And I don't know how to get the urgency across, except to tell the truth. And I think that's why it says, as in the days of Noah, it's going to be like that here. People are given in marriage. People are going on with their lives, business as usual, until he shows up. When he shows up, they're all going to be like, whoa, you know, whoa. And the urgency will hit them. I hope that tonight, because I know it's a work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. It isn't something that I can drum up or emotionally charge the crowd to make a move towards God. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. But I am going to say the words and allow the Holy Spirit to use those words. If there is not a sense of urgency upon your life tonight, I pray to God that you get that sense of urgency tonight. 
to surrender your life to Jesus. That he would flood you and hit you like a freight train in a good way, like he's done for everybody in this room that's been born again, and that you would be changed and transformed starting tonight, that this would be the first night of the rest of your life born again in Jesus Christ. But that urgency has to be yours. I'll tell you what, God knocks on the door. He's always, always on the other side of that door. And all you have to do is to take a step towards him, to just turn the knob, to just let him into your life, to just say, God, are you real? God, would you come into my life? God, I want to know if you're anything what these people say you are. Just ask him. It truly isn't a program or a philosophy. It is a person, and he will flood your life. He just will. I know it. Well, Jesus is amazed at their unbelief, dumbfounded at their lack of ability to comprehend what's happening right in front of their eyes. I'm about to go to the cross. I mean, you have to understand from the foundations of the world, this plan has been enacted, basically. This, the whole thing, is before even Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, the plan of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit was already enacted for them to be saved. Placing the tree in the garden, the aid of the tree of the garden, they died spiritually and began to die physically. And at that point, he gives them the plan. The seed, your seed from you, Eve, is going to save the world. And Jesus has been waiting for this moment for all of eternity, all of our time, all of our dates, are based off of this one act right here, the act this, this week right here of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, A.D. and B.C. It's just right there. That is the pivotal point in all human history. And Jesus is at that point, and the world around him is oblivious to what's happening. And so he is using his outside voice. So he gives this very pointed parable you guys have rejected me. You guys have killed all the prophets. You, and he's going to say that specifically here in a minute. You guys have done all these things, and you've all gone, and you've made light of it. You think I'm just a problem. You think Jesus, or myself, Jesus says, that I'm just a problem, something that has to be getting rid of, to, to be removed, so that you can go on with your lives. You understand, nothing's going to be the same in about two or three days. The world will all change, and you're oblivious to what's happening. And so he describes what happens. I think this is interesting. I don't want to get into too deep a theology here, but first there's a group that's invited. And a lot of people grab onto that verse 14. Many are called, few are chosen. See, they're chosen. You don't really have a choice. Well, okay, but he invited a group, and then he invited another group. So they weren't all invited at the same time. He invited a group, then he invited another group, and then he went out and invited another group. After, I mean, they're just that's how it works. There's invitations placed. And you're invited, and I'm invited, and everybody, whosoever will, is invited to the wedding feast. They can all come. Now, the only people that can't come are those that don't have this white garment, and we're going to hit on that next. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens of, were of old, and the earth standing out of water in the water. And he goes on to describe that. Still people making light of it. They still scoff. In the last days, they're going to be looking at you saying, are you still clinging to that dead religion of Christianity? 
You really think he's still coming? You've been saying he's been coming for... That's what they're going to say. And they are saying that. And so they make light of it. In Acts chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, others mocking. This is after they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The guys come out of the old, uh, the upper room, and they're all speaking in tongues because it's a gift of the Holy Spirit and still valid for today. And they're all speaking in other languages. And others mocked, saying, because they didn't understand what was happening, they are full of new wine, making light of a work of the Holy Spirit. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. No, 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 this is genuine. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's happening. It's happening, you know. Isaiah 61.10. This is the white robe. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We've been given a robe of righteousness for those who are born again believers, and that is the difference. There's a robe of righteousness that's been given to us. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed, given to us, okay? This guy has come into the wedding feast without this robe spoken of in Isaiah 61.10. He does not have the righteousness of Christ. He's shown up in heaven with his own righteousness, with his own garments, with what he thought was the appropriate attire for the wedding. And this is very offensive to the king who has provided the proper garments to come to his son's wedding. And this man has refused to wear him. And in fact, so much so that when he's asked about this garment, the man who's not wearing the garment is speechless. He doesn't have an answer for why he's not wearing it. Why aren't you wearing the garment that I provided for you? And he's like, because the answer is something that you don't say out loud. I'm wearing the garment that I want to wear. I'm choosing to wear it. It's a selfish way to show up at somebody else's party. You know, you can't have that. This is what we're doing. We're doing this. We're wearing this. This is what's required to be here. Well, I'm going to wear my own thing. That's not acceptable. It's not your party. It's a selfish thing. I, he's speechless. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This robe of righteousness. Revelation six ten through 11. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until, you're, until you judge and avenge uh, our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then the white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. More the robes given. And finally, Psalm 5, 9. For there is no faithfulness... Oh, I'm sorry, that's way out of thing. I, that's, another, that's in verse 22. My notes aren't very clear. My fault. I'm sorry. These are the white robes we're given. You cannot show up to heaven in your own righteousness. It won't be accepted. In fact, Jesus gives us such a very vivid and descriptive story of how of, this is exactly what's going to happen to you 
How did you get in here? I'm speechless. And the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that doesn't even fit with the story. He's not even doing the parable anymore. He's in the middle of a, a very emotional plea for them, saying, if you try to get into heaven with the robes that you're wearing, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, those robes, this is what happens to you. I and mean, he's very pointed about that. And he wants the sheep to know that too. All the people that are looking at these great men of God that they've had in their homes and, and, and in their towns their whole life have always looked up to them at synagogue. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, those guys in their robes are going to be cast out into outer darkness. You need a different robe. You need the robe that I'm offering. You need the robe that my father's giving to you. He's the one who's the host. He's the one preparing the, the wedding. You don't get to choose. It's not a choice. Verse 15. When the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, that's many words, transgression is unavoidable. They're going to try to get him to say something that's going to condemn himself, you know. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. These are uh, Greek Jews. Um, It was just something they did. Um, Just a a group. Um, We'll see that later on in Acts 2 and and 3 and 4 when they don't have the the widows being taken care of. But anyway, these are the Herodians. So they've come and they've got this plan. Here's what I want you to ask him. Go, Go find Jesus and ask him this. Teacher, we know that you are true these guys, and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is obviously one of those conversations that you get into that they would get into on a regular basis with people, you know. Um, If you wanted to argue with somebody, you break up something controversial like this, and it would always end in a tie because you never wanted to say this, that, or the other thing. And so they thought, well, give that to him because there isn't an answer for it. You know, that's their plan here. But they start off with flattery. And Jesus calls them on that. He doesn't even, uh, he doesn't even acknowledge it. He's not even polite. And I, I take note of that. And I think that's an important point. He's not even polite to these guys who start off with teacher, that's respectful, rabbi. We know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth and that you, you don't care about anybody because you don't regard people. We, we see that about you. It's just, and Jesus doesn't say, yes, it's true. I mean, he doesn't take any of that in. He's just waiting. And you ever have that conversation with somebody? I have those all the time, but that happens all the time, more than you'd think. Well, you know, I just really enjoyed that. I, I just have this one question. Here it comes. Here it comes. You know, be polite. Nope, I'm not going to be polite. I'm tired of being polite sometimes, you know. It's like, oh, I'm not going to be nice because you don't want to know the truth. You don't want to know my opinion. You're just waiting for me to say something so that you can entangle me in my words so that you can say what you've always wanted to say, and I'm not going to take the bait but I will shut you down. And he does. So here's the flattery thing. You got to watch for this. Psalm 5, 9. For there is uh, no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. They do this to 
catch you off guard, to put you on your heels, to put you in a place of vulnerability. Psalm 12, 2, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. They've always got an agenda. There's always a second, there's a second tier, uh, level, or uh, uh, it's like peeling an onion, you know? There's another, there's another thing happening here. Something else is going on behind it. And so who should we pay taxes to? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and I don't think that's wrong. Um, I mean, obviously it's not, but I don't think that's wrong for us to perceive people's wickedness. We can tell when there's agendas, when there's something else they want to say. And it's like, look, I would respect you so much more if you just came out and said it. I know it's going to be a rough conversation, but you flattering me first is not going to make it an easier conversation. Let's just get at it then. I mean, let's jump right to it. Why do you test me, he says, you hypocrites? (laughs) Show me the tax money. I mean, that's amazing. Our Jesus, gentle Jesus, you know. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? They haven't said anything wrong yet. And now the sheep watching this all go down, because you know there's always a crowd, there's always an audience, and there's always somebody else hearing. And Jesus says these things for everybody involved. They're stunned that Jesus would say something like to these people. These are the respected ones. These are the leaders. These are the ones. I mean, we all revere them. He doesn't even revere them, you know. He just called them hypocrites, and they didn't say anything except that he was a great teacher and a great man of God who teaches the truth. But he perceived their wickedness and went right to the second level immediately. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. He says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and uh, to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left them and went their way. Not like, oh, that was a really good, thank you. We've been struggling with this for, well, ever since Rome showed up. Thank you for letting us know that. We'll start paying our taxes now. Nobody was appreciative of the answer. They just marveled at the fact that he had an answer, and he was so blunt. Jesus is blunt. He's going to be blunt this whole, the rest of this week, nothing but straightforward, you know? And I appreciate that. It encourages me to be blunt sometimes. Of course, you want to have tact. You want to be a blessing. When there's honest questions, you want to give honest answers. But you can tell the difference in those things. You can feel that. You can sense that. You should be able to anyway. And that it's okay to be blunt. Anyway, he is. Now, a lot of people take this out of context. Well, therefore, you need to all pay our taxes. Well, let me tell you something about the United States. We don't have a Caesar. Be careful about that. Whose inscription and whose picture is on our money? It's our founding fathers. Please remember that. The government is for the people, by the people, it's of the people. It's us. We're the government. We're in charge. We let them represent us. They're not our masters. They're not our leaders. They're not our anything. They represent us. And if they misrepresent us, we fire them and we get new people to represent us. We're in charge. Now, it doesn't mean we can choose or not choose to pay taxes. Don't get me wrong. But we elect people who agree with what taxes should be given and what taxes shouldn't. Roads, potholes. I'm all for taxes. I'm all for socialism, if they want to call that socialism. I want my roads smooth and ready to go. I want my sewers to work. I want my water to run. I want those things. I understand those are community things that we all need to pitch in and pay for. That makes sense to me. There are other things that I disagree with. I still pay my taxes because if we begin to cherry pick what things we're going to pay for, well, I'm not going to pay for that abortion. I'm not going to do that. You fire the people 
that voted for that. Because the other group, the other side says, well, I'm not paying for defense. No, you've got to pay for the defense. We all got to chip in for the defense. Well, I don't want to pay for it. I don't like guns. I refuse to pay. You know how stupid that is? I don't care. I don't want to pay for guns. Well, I'm not going to pay for abortion. That's not how it works. How it works is we vote them out, okay? Um, but we don't automatically render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's just because Caesar says so. We're in charge. We have the say. So I just throw that out there. This is not one of those verses. It's, it's a quick fix. It's, uh, it's cheap to use it the way it's used a lot of times when it comes to taxes. I can be upset about my taxes. You don't need to quote this verse to me. I'm going to do something about these taxes by changing my representation is what I'm going to do, or being vocal in other areas of the country or support other candidates uh, that get them fired so that these taxes aren't happening the way they're supposed to happen. Does that make sense? And so this is not a direct comparison. These guys are under the authority of Caesar. They've got a ruler over them. Give him his money. It's his money anyway. He's already got claim to it, you know. Um, That's not the case in America. We have claim to it. So um, we need to be very active in these things. I encourage you to be very active in these things. Verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, so the Pharisees had their shot, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, so they don't believe in the resurrection to begin with, and that gives us an idea as to why they use the argument they're going to use with Jesus, because this is the argument the Sadducees use against the Pharisees. Two groups of religious rulers. The Pharisees, a little more conservative, a little more back-to-the-Bible kind of guys is what they are. Um, and they do believe in a resurrection. They believe in life after death. The Sadducees, which is mind-boggling to me, were the liberals, you know, and they did not believe in life after death. And I'm like, what do you teach in synagogue? Why are we worshiping? Why are we doing it? Why are we offering sacrifices? Well, because when you die, you turn into nothing. They just, they didn't, it doesn't make any sense. But that was their thing. And it made sense to them. So they used the question that they would always throw at the Pharisees because they were rivals, you know. Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring um, for his brother. And, and that's, that's true. It's, it's in, it's in uh, Deuteronomy 25.5 if you want to look it up. It's actually a law. So um, don't leave her a widow. Don't leave her without a child. Why don't you take the responsibility as her brother or as your brother's brother, take his wife, and give her a child. So you're supposed to do that. Now, there were with us seven brothers. You know, the first died after he had married, and having died after he had married, having no offspring, left his wife to his his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third. Um, even to the seventh. And you'd think number six would be like, oh, it's okay, I'm not going to marry her. She's the black widow here, kind of, whatever. <laughs> they all die in their story. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. In other words, they thought this was really a gotcha question for the Pharisees. Okay, so there's this resurrection that you're talking about. Well, what if we followed uh, Deuteronomy 25.5 and seven brothers had her and they all go to heaven together? Are they all going to fight for it? Do they all get the same wife up there? How does that going to work? Of course, there's no resurrection because that doesn't make it, you know, you could see how they do that. It's like if God's so big that he can pick a rock that he himself can't lift it, you know, kind of like, ha ha, got you. No, he can't. He's huge. He can't make a rock that big. There's not enough matter in the world. He made it. So there's the answer to that question. Um, <laughs> Jesus, I love Jesus. He just goes, he answered them and said, you're mistaken. <laughs> 
The whole premise is wrong. Not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Again, that's all these guys did for a living is study the scriptures and try to understand them. And he says, uh, you're wrong. You don't even know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection, which means there is one, Jesus says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. They're the same as them. They, we don't have this relationship up in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the multitudes heard this, remember, that's who Jesus is speaking to. These sheep need to hear that these Sadducees are wrong. They were astonished at his teaching. You could never shut down the Sadducees. They always had these great points, always had these great arguments. And Jesus is just going, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, knocking them down like tin cans. And the people are like, who is this apologist? You know, who is this guy that knows all this stuff? And they're starting to get it. If God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there is no resurrection, then the scriptures, you're making them out to be a liar based upon your doctrine, Sadducees. He's trying to teach them something. It says that he is their current God, which means they're currently alive someplace, so there is a resurrection, so shuts down that. And that, that's really what they stood on. That was their platform, the Sadducees. Now, okay, so there's a resurrection. Now, the Pharisees loved it. Oh, good job. You got him. Well, they're going to get it too. Now, in Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, the two things that these guys lacked that caused them to come up with this crazy doctrine, that caused them to embrace it so much that they made it their religion, okay, is that they didn't know the Scripture and they didn't know the power of God. And that's something that we can, that's how we get off. That's how we get off track. That's how we embrace doctrines that aren't of God, that are of men, as we don't know what the scriptures say. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There is a way to wrongly divide the word of truth. That way we need to learn what the right way to divide the word of truth is. You can have a Bible study, that's fine, but if, you're, if you don't know how to rightly divide it, it's the pooling of ignorance. That's all it is. People sharing their ideas of what they think it means, and nobody's right and nobody's wrong, and we all went home with less than we came in with, you know? No, we need to rightly divide the Word of God, being Bereans, studying the Scriptures, knowing from beginning to end, well, this verse says this, therefore, let's find out what it means, because it doesn't have to be a mystery. We're here to discover. Let the Bible interpret itself. Let it show up. So I'm all for Bible studies, but come to conclusions, we have the responsibility as we study God's word to come to conclusions and to stand upon solid foundational scripture and doctrine. We need to stand upon that. And we are obligated to learn this and to know this. As Christians, we have to be the most well-informed group out there when it comes to the Bible. Don't let an atheist know more about the Bible than you. We have to know this stuff. And these guys didn't. These guys spent all day and Jesus says, don't you, you guys, you, you're, you don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. We need to be diligent. Now, Acts 17, verses 10 through 12, the Bereans. The Bereans was a different group of people. These guys would go as itinerant ministers, Paul and Silas, and they would travel around. But when they got to Berea, the Bereans were a little different. They'd listen attentively, respectfully, 
And then they go home and they'd study the scriptures to make sure what was just taught is true. That is a, it's foundational for every believer. As you visit churches, as you move from city to city and state to state and go to other churches or even travel across town because you, you don't like this one anymore and you want to go someplace else, be a Berean wherever you go and make sure that what's being taught is true based off of scripture. If errant doctrine comes out of their mouth and it's not checked, you have to be careful about that. Don't just go someplace because they have programs or because they have a better greeter society or whatever. They have bulletins over there. I'm sorry, we don't want to waste the paper. Most of the bulletins end up flying around or we pick them up and throw them in the trash. You know, solid doctrine is so much more important. So the Bereans, here's what they did. Verse 10 of chapter 17. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Uh, these were more fair-minded than those of Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women uh, as well as men. In fact, they, they got more truth, and that's, that's how it should go. I, I, don't know if he's, I don't know if that's true or not. Okay, I mean, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt because you're up there and I'm down here, but I'm going to check into this and I'm going to look it up. Oh, you're crazy. You might find, you know, J.D., what are you saying? That's fine. Go for it. On the other hand, you may say, oh, wow, it says, it does say that. And it says that here, 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 and here. And as I dig deeper, wow, we just barely scratched the surface of this amazing truth, you know. I never knew that. And they grew, and these guys did. They would hear they would hear Paul, and they would hear Silas, and they would listen to them, and they'd receive it. Okay, okay. And then they'd go home, and they'd study. And be like, wow, what they said was true. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one we've been waiting for. And they got saved. Um, it's a good thing. It, it always works out when you study. So, um, they were astonished. That's where we left off. Verse 34 is where we pick up. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. <laughs> We can do better. Then one of them, a lawyer, oh asked him a question, testing him, and saying, I want to do a voice so bad here, but I'm not going to. <laughs> kind of nasally, you know, and high-pitched, I don't know. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? That's a setup. Why don't you tell me what the great commandment is? Now, where is he supposed to go? Where is the lawyer leading him in his questioning? To the Ten Commandments. Go ahead, pick the best. How do you pick one out of the greatest Ten Commandments? Good luck. Try to do it. So Jesus doesn't go to the Ten Commandments. The two greatest commandments that Jesus quotes here, neither of them are in the Ten Commandments. I know we know that, but do we really know that? He went way out on a limb here and says, no, 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 I'm going to go to a completely different section of the Scriptures. Because those aren't the greatest commandments. None of those. All ten of those, you can memorize them all the want. You can put them in all the parks and all those things. You really only need two. And neither of them were written on those stones that Moses brought down. There's two bigger commandments than that. And he gives them here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you get these two down, you've got it all down. Everything is built upon those two, loving God and loving people. Paul even narrows it down a little further. 
Paul, actually, when he was asked, he said, the greatest commandment is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Leaving out what Jesus just said was the primary commandment, the most important commandment was to love God with all your heart. Because Paul understood and had learned, as he was a part of the Sanhedrin at one point, he was one of these guys right here, like these guys anyway, he learned that when I'm doing and loving God, the fruit of me loving God is loving people. So if I'm not loving people, I am not fulfilling the first commandment anyway. So until I get this second commandment down, I'm not fulfilling the first. I can't. So Paul would even take it a step further. But Jesus goes clear out and says, nope, it's neither. It's these two. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Now, they should have ran at that point. That's not where you're supposed to go, you know. Now they stay. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Very similar question about what do you guys think of John the Baptist? Was his baptism of God or was it of men? Remember that question he gave him? He gives them, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Savior? Whose son is he? Where does he come from? Well, they know the answer to this. He's the son of David. Well, he is. I mean, he's going to come from the line of David. But Jesus takes them a step further because that's as far as they ever got with the Christ. It's as far as they got with the Messiah. He's going to be of the line of David. In fact, the Jews today are still stuck on that. Those that have not been completed Jews and are not, have not accepted their Savior, Jesus Christ, are stuck on the fact that they're just looking for David. They're looking for someone like Moses, a man, simply a man, a great leader, anointed by God, but just a Savior like Moses was. Jesus is trying to take them a step further. And this is where you lose most of the uncompleted Jews in Israel, is at this point right here. Who is he? Whose son is he? Well, he's David's son. How then does David in the spirit call him, this his son, Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? You never do that. It's always great grandpa is senior. He's always better. He's always higher. It just trails down. And, and it should be that way. There should be greater respect for the older generation, right? And that's very true here. Well, if he, how, how is David calling him Lord then? Why, what grandfather would ever call his grandson Lord? Isn't that interesting how you see that more and more today? How you see the kids ruling over the families? How is it that you call him Lord? How is it that any of our families in this whole country are calling their children Lord and letting their kids run the show? They're saying when they're, when they're going to be punished. They're saying what punishment they're going to get. They're, they're, they've got mom and dad wrapped, we, used, we would say, wrapped around their finger, you know? That's not the case. So Jesus challenges them and says, how is it that David calls him Lord? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Now, you know the disciples are all sitting there going, oh, he didn't go there. There he went. Oh, man, you know? And Matthew takes the time in Scripture to write that down there. And I like that because Matthew's like, that was a mic drop, you know. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anybody dare question him anymore. They all went, they went away with their tail between their legs. And, those, and honestly, okay, so it's hard to say the hard things like Jesus is saying right to their face. I mean, they are right there. He's calling them hypocrites. He's telling them they're wrong. He says they don't understand. They don't understand the scriptures. They don't know the power of God. He's telling them everything that they took pride in themselves. And he says, you don't have any of the things to stand on that you thought you could stand upon. 
That's a hard thing to do. And that's a hard thing to do, but for wolves, that has to happen. I've got to worry. Jesus has to worry about the 5,000. I've got to worry about the 4,000. I've got to worry about all the people who are under their spell and let them know these guys are nothing but men and they're wrong. And they need to know that. They need to know they're wrong and you need to know they're wrong so that you can come to the truth. You cannot love people without the truth. And that is what the world is trying to get every Christian in this world to do, is to love, 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 minus the truth. And you can't do it. Don't buy into that garbage. The truth of the matter is, this world is in desperate need of a Savior. They're in need of a Savior because they are full of sin, and they're dying in their sin, and their sin is going to cast them into hell. And it'll be their choice. But our God, full of love, recognizing their sin, calling us out on our sin, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in place of us because that's the requirement for sin. And until we accept that forgiveness and that sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, we are dead in our sin and we are destined for hell. The whole world is, and they have to know that. So important. Because I cannot tell them to come to church. I cannot tell them to love Jesus. I cannot invite them to be baptized if they don't even know why they're coming or what they're worshiping or who he is or why he came or any of those things. If we don't talk about sin, we lose the effectiveness of the cross. We've made Christ's death of no effect. The truth has to be shared. The truth has to be shared in love, of course. But you cannot share love without the truth. And that's where we close today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son. Thank you for giving us this son. They called him David, but David called him Lord. In Isaiah 9, 6, 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The son that they didn't understand who he was from is from you. You gave the son. You sent him. We thank you for that, God. We acknowledge that tonight. In our own hearts, we know that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our specific sins, the things that separated us from you our own will, our own desires, the lust of our flesh, the pride of life, all these things that have drawn us away from you and caused us so much harm in our own lives and is causing so much harm in everybody else's life. It has separated us from you, but you found a way by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And we thank you for that. And we accept him as our Lord and Savior. We believe on him for salvation. We trust that the cross and his sacrifice was sufficient for us. We trust that you will give us and have given us the robe of righteousness. The righteousness of your son has been imputed to us so that we can come to that marriage in the end. We're excited for that. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for accepting us. Thank you for giving us that robe of righteousness. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Would you bless these folks as they go today? And Lord, give us a vigor. Give us a boldness. Give us love, but give us the truth. Help us to understand your word and help us to share it with those around us. This world is in desperate need of a Savior, and they, and they know it. But we need to share with them that Jesus is their Savior, that he's the one that came, that he's the only way for them to be forgiven. Lord, help us to be out loud. Help us to know the Scriptures better than anybody around us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good week and a fruitful week.